Welcome to the Desert Sun Podcast with me, your host, Tim Newman. I am also the author of the blog, White Sun of the Desert, which can be found at www.desertsun.co.uk. Thank you for joining me. Okay, a few people have suggested to me that I ought to try doing a podcast, and everyone seems to be doing one these days, so I thought I'd give it a go. Now, this is the first time I'm doing something like this, and I'm going to be learning as I go, so please bear with me through whatever teething problems I have. I've bought a good microphone and downloaded some decent editing software, so it's not like I'm just talking to my iPhone here. I have made some effort to get the sound quality right. Nevertheless, I've got a computer whirring beside me, and the room's a bit echoey, so it might take a few goes to get the sound right. And yeah, the intro music is staying, so don't bother complaining about that. Okay, I'm not sure if I'll have the time to make a weekly podcast while also writing the blog. Right now, I have no idea how much effort's involved in this. There's also the issue of material, and I don't know if I'll have enough stuff to talk about for a regular podcast. Blog posts just seem to present themselves to me at a rate of about two or three a day. It's funny, every day I have a slight anxiety that I'll have nothing to write on the blog, but by the time I've got up and had a shower, I've got two or three posts lined up in my head ready to go. After two or three years of writing on my current output, you'd think I'd quit worrying about that, but it's always there in the back of my head. Fortunately, there's enough nonsense going on in the world I can always find something to write about. And if not, I can always find an article on polyamory or carrier bags. So I don't know what format this podcast will take in terms of length, content or regularity. This first one is an experiment to gauge how my voice sounds and whether anyone would be interested in me talking about other topics. So I thought what I'd start with is a spare presentation that I've had on my computer for a while. About a year and a half ago, I got contacted out of the blue by an American who invited me to give a talk to some officers of the US military over in Washington, D.C. And he said he'd found me via my blog. And what he liked about me was that I was able to describe what it's actually like working in the oil business overseas rather than a view from a PR representative from an oil company or something. And he thought that I'd be able to give some good information to the attendees at his conference, whatever it was, which I was happy to do and I agreed to do it. But from the beginning, I made it very clear that I have to be down as speaking in my personal capacity as a blogger and not a representative of my employer. And he agreed with that. It was no problem. But then the day before I was due to fly, he sent me a copy of the the brochure that he hands out to all the participants. And it said, Timothy Newman, and then the name of my employer, which is a sackable offence anywhere you work. I couldn't possibly go there once this literature had been handed out and give this talk. And then later try to pretend that you know, I, I didn't know about it or that I I couldn't possibly be confused with someone speaking on behalf of the company. So I was very disappointed. Anyway, I pulled out, but I'd already prepared the, the talk. So I thought this is a good opportunity to, um, while I'm trying out podcasting, to um, uh, give this talk. So, okay. So the, the topic of it was the politics of oil production and engineers' perspective. I'll start with a, an anecdote that I, I got from Nigeria. 
when I was in Nigeria, I knew a guy through a friend of mine who was the the head. He was he was the the head of one of the. It was a foreign oil company which had interests in Nigeria. I'll put it that way, and he was the head of that. So every month or so, his company would get a shipment of oil. That's how they got paid. If you're a partner in an oil project in in Nigeria or somewhere, you get paid in shipments of oil. So if you're a twenty five percent owner. Every fourth shipment, you're allowed to take away and sell. That's a bit simplistic, but that's pretty much how it works. Anyway, this this chap, he got a phone call one day from somebody working in the Nigerian customs saying, yeah, there's a problem with your shipment. This was a super tanker full of crude oil. It was worth millions. And it was the guy said, well, we, we can't release your shipment. There's a problem. So the chap I knew said, okay, what's the problem? What's going on? He said, well, never mind what the problem is, but you live in Lagos, right? Uh, The guy I knew said, yeah, I live in Lagos. He said, okay, I've got a cousin in Lagos and his mobile phone's run out of credit. So you you need to put some credit on his mobile phone. And my my acquaintance said, okay, okay, what, how much? He said, oh, about $15 worth. said, okay, and then what? He said, no, that's it. That's all you have to do. Yeah, my, my cousin's called me. He's, he's got no, no credit on his phone. So you need, to, you need to put some credit on his phone. And when you've done that, we'll release the shipment. And sure enough, my, my friend put some money on the phone and the, the shipment was released. And this is a true story. This is actually what happened in Nigeria. So this is the kind of thing that if you're the general manager of an oil company in Nigeria, these are the kind of things you need to deal with. So where does this come from? Okay, well, it all comes down to what can be generally described as resource nationalism. And almost right from its inception over a century ago, Resource nationalism has been a feature of the oil industry. Resource nationalism is the term used to describe the idea that governments, or the people, should assert control over the oil and gas reserves located within their territory. This often takes the form of national oil company, which oversees all production and operations, but it can also appear in other guises. For example, the adoption of policies stipulating a majority government ownership of all new developments. Now, the thing to understand about resource nationalism is that it sells well politically. It is very easy to whip up popular support for taking control of oil and gas resources and not allowing foreigners to steal the nation's wealth. This is particularly the case in former colonies such as in Africa. But when I worked in Russia, I met people who genuinely believed that the international oil companies were stealing their oil, and I dare say their opinions haven't changed. It's an emotive vote winner amongst those who don't understand the principles of free market economics, which is most people. Resource nationalism is also popular among the politicians themselves because a national oil company and other intrusive policies, some of which I'll talk about later, provide handy opportunities for junkets, kickbacks, employing relatives and invitations to international conferences where they can strut about on the world stage, all the while claiming to be a champion of the people. However, it has been proved beyond all doubt that the most efficient way of extracting oil and gas reserves in any country, and the way which delivers the greatest benefits to the local population over the long term, is to license the exploration blocks and tax the production. Beyond providing a robust regulatory regime to cover this, and things like environmental protection, governments really ought to stay well out of oil production. 
With the possible exception of Norway's Statoil, which has now changed its names to Equinor or something like that, nationalised oil companies are, to varying degrees, models of inefficiency, corruption, nepotism and technical inferiority. But as I said, resource nationalism sells well. My point in this introduction is to emphasise that resource nationalism is here to stay. It isn't going anywhere, and international oil companies need to learn to deal with it. What that actually entails, and how oil companies go about it, is the subject of this talk. What I will do is give you some examples of how resource nationalism manifests itself at the ground level, where the lowly engineer finds himself, and what effects this has on international oil companies, both in the immediate term and the long term. One of the most obvious impacts of resource nationalism, as practiced by various governments, is that it provides political cover for all sorts of unethical practices on the part of government agencies and their employees. The anecdote I shared at the beginning is an example of this. Had any complaint been lodged, it would have been framed as an attack on the entirely selfless government employee who is the only thing standing between the noble Nigerian people and a rapacious foreign oil company who wants to enslave the people and make off with their oil. When I worked in Nigeria, we operated a floating production storage offloading facility called an FPSO. And every week or so when we had to offload oil into a tanker, we would have to invite members of the Department of Petroleum Resources on board to oversee the, the transfer. Now, this is pretty normal. If you consider it like a customs transaction, then it's normal to have government agents to, of some sort to oversee the, the offloading. This is pretty normal. But what used to happen is these members of the DPR and other government agencies would turn up on the facility, maybe 15, 20 of them, and they would raid the kitchens. They didn't really show any interest in the oil being offloaded. But what you'd find when they boarded the helicopter to go back to shore is they'd gone into the freezers in the kitchen and filled up their offshore bags full of chicken and anything else they could find, basically stealing it to go home and eat it. And... The oil companies were too terrified to do anything about this. Nobody on board said, hey, what are you doing? Stop stealing the food. You're not here to do that. But this was something that these government agents felt they were entitled to do. They, were, they had the authority. They had the power. In theory, well, and in practice, they could hold up the offloading of the shipment and not sign it off. So they had carte blanche to wander around doing what they like, including emptying the, the facility's freezers, stealing the food and flying back with it where they could... I don't know, use it to feed their families or more likely sell it. So in a country which practices resource nationalism, the various agencies and authorities with whom you must deal are effectively given carte blanche to behave in any manner they see fit, with almost no method of recourse. Perhaps at the very highest levels, the big bosses can fly in and exert some influence. But down at the engineer sort of level where I was, you often find yourself sat in front of government officials who have no idea what they're doing, but are issuing instructions with which you must comply. You can also find yourself having to agree to bizarre conditions laid down by various government entities. One of the agreements that the oil companies had with the government agencies was that if ever there was a requirement for one of the government representatives to witness a commissioning of a piece of equipment or attend a meeting with stakeholders, the oil company would have to fly them over their business class. Now, this was fair enough, but in the small print of the agreement was a requirement that each government employee was entitled to around 50 kilograms of excess baggage. Now, a lot of Africans use British supermarkets as wholesalers. 
A few times I've been in London and I've been in a Sainsbury's or an Asda and I've seen Africans loading up a trolley with just a single product, usually some kind of shampoo or nappies or something like that. And what they do, they fly back to Africa and then they sell them retail in some shop that they or their relative owns. Well, the the people working in the Nigerian government authorities worked out that these overseas trips for paid for by the oil companies was a good opportunity to buy a load of stuff overseas. So they stipulated that they were entitled to 50, 60, 70 kilograms of excess baggage. And when they arrived in location, they'd go shopping and bring tons of this stuff back at oil company expense. Again, the oil companies accepted this. Nobody said anything. Nobody nobody protested and said, look, why is it necessary for your representatives, your engineers, to have 30, 40 kilograms of baggage allowance on the business class ticket, plus an additional 40, 50 kilograms? Nobody said, we're not prepared to pay extra money just so that you guys can use us as a kind of uh, logistic services for bringing stuff back for you and your relatives to sell. Nobody said this, but this is what used to happen. And again, this is another example of the kind of behaviour government employees engage in when working for a regime which endorses resource nationalism. One of the things that gets unnoticed with resource nationalism is that it doesn't just stop at the national level of politics, but it cascades down to local levels as well. Local politics can play just as much a role in an oilfield development as national politics, but the two are not always consistent with one another. There are many things which must be dealt with at a local level, particularly with regards to construction permitting and approvals. Local politics in a lot of these countries make the national politics look like models of honesty and integrity. You often find yourself having to deal with a local strongman, which can be in the form of a tribal chief or the mayor of a township. It's not always like this, but it is usually the case that the local strongman earns about $50,000 per year in official salary, but he owns his own plane. This is the guy who you need to get to sign your construction permits. Note that this is not the overall permit to develop the field. I'm talking about the permits required for all the constituent parts, such as a warehouse. He also just so happens to have a wife or brother who owns a construction company. Now guess who's getting the construction contract? Now when I was in Sakhalin, I was involved with the construction of an accommodation facility. And I arrived late in the project when it had pretty much been built. But the project manager told me about what happened at the beginning. Now, it was built near some military base and half of it, half of the land was bought from the military, which was fairly straightforward, although they had to spend a lot of money clearing away old munitions, artillery shells and things. But the rest of it, nobody seemed to know who owned the land. So the oil company had to spend about a year on an exercise trying to find out who owned the land and then approach them and then buy it. And this was reasonably successful. But they worked with the mayor's office, they worked with the land registry, and they hired lawyers and things. I think they put adverts in newspapers saying, do you own this land? Is this yours? Because this oil company wants to buy it. Well, anyway, at the end of it, there was some land that they couldn't, part of this land they wanted to buy. They couldn't work out who owned it. It seemed that nobody owned it. There didn't seem to be any records. So the oil company was given the go-ahead by the local mayor to, okay, you've, you've done everything that you could, so you can go ahead and, and start your plans to construct on this. So the oil company started work on the assumption they could use this land, which meant they did all the engineering. But when they came to apply for the construction permit, the mayor said, oh, no, no, this, this part of the land is um, owned by somebody. 
And the oil company said, well, yeah, we've been through this. We tried, we couldn't find out. And the mayor said, oh, no, no, it belongs to me. And by the way, this is what I'm going to charge you for using it. So what this mayor had done, he'd obviously got the got hold of this land, kept it quiet, waited till the oil company was committed to that particular site instead of using one of the alternatives, and then turned around and said, oh, this is mine, and you're going to have to pay me X million for the use of my land. So this isn't something that's endorsed at a national level. This is purely a local matter. But this is the kind of things that a project manager in a major oil project will find themselves running up against. And indeed, what can sometimes be amusing is the disparity between what is said by the national politicians about a development and the petty bickering that goes on at ground level. An African government will talk for days about the strategic importance of a new development which will propel their country into prosperity and there should be no delays. Yet they spend a year or two arguing over the pipeline route. Why? Because landowners along the route will get compensated and the various ministers have been buying up land along the proposed routes. While the oil company wants to select the route based on technical considerations and cost, the ministers start squabbling because each stands to win or lose depending on where they've made their investment. Now I couldn't talk about resource nationalism without mentioning local content laws. Local content is the industry term for the legislation in force in many developing countries which requires an oil company to hire locals, utilise local services such as engineering and construction contractors and use local suppliers. In most countries there are quotas for this and they can be quite high. These laws were introduced to ensure that local people and companies take part in the activities of an oil company, thus transferring knowledge and creating employment opportunities and other benefits, such as opening up markets servicing the operations. The theory behind the laws is sound enough. Even I would think something is amiss if a major project was executed in the developing world using imported labour and materials and no benefits were transferred to a local population who are in desperate need of an economic boost. When this has been the case in the past, for example at Tengiz in Kazakhstan when Turkish labour was used in place of local hires, the results can sometimes be violent. The problem is, as with so many well-intentioned initiatives in the developing world, in many cases the system has become utterly distorted and actually does the opposite of what it is supposed to do. The reasons for this are simple. Most countries with local content legislation are backward, undeveloped and poor. To varying degrees depending on the country, this state of affairs is brought about by corruption, greed, nepotism and a culture of callous neglect by the ruling elites. Quite unsurprisingly, these ruling elites apply the same characteristics to the local content legislation, with the following results. Number 1. Nepotism and cronyism. Favourable positions in oil companies are awarded to those who are politically connected, who in turn employ members of their family and friends. 2. Conflicts of interest. The politically connected, often those who oversee the implementation of the local content legislation, form businesses which are then put on a shortlist of approved local suppliers. Locals within oil companies do the same thing and award themselves contracts. 3. Poor employees and poor contractors. Local content laws make firing a local almost impossible as the company has no choice but to hire them. Similarly, service providers know when an oil company is mandated by legislation to use them, hence they provide rubbish that is expensive and turns up late and wrong. 4. Overstaffing. In order to maintain a percentage quota of locals, oil company departments are overstaffed with 20 locals doing what 3 could do quite adequately. 
These effects are seen in almost every aspect of an oil company's operations. Now there are two problems here with regards to the position of international oil companies. The first is that this situation results in the transfer of cash from the oil companies to the host country's ruling elite, who are usually already fabulously wealthy. Although everything is technically legal, the effect is much the same as having turned up with a fat brown envelope and paying off the president like we used to do in the good old days. I'm not convinced that companies stating that they complied with a letter of very bad laws, while completely ignoring the spirit of the law, is going to work out very well for them in the long term. There's every chance the population might eventually get sick of this. Secondly, the oil companies are often forced, to a point, to accept designs, constructions, materials and equipment from local contractors and suppliers which are inadequate, non-compliant with technical standards and dangerously unsafe. It is a fact that major Western oil companies knowingly install defective equipment into unsafe designs in the developing world because they are practically forced to by the prevailing laws. Even more often, to the point it is routine, they do so unknowingly. If the oil company protests, the governmental authorities in charge of implementing local content legislation will simply tell them that it is their responsibility to assist the local contractors in bringing their work up to standard. In other words, the government takes no responsibility whatsoever for the effect of their own laws and the behaviour of their employees. It is all on the oil company. So what should oil companies do about this? Well, in my opinion, they should, they should start pushing back more on the more blatant examples of this. They should stop pandering to the governments and possibly cancel a few high-profile projects. It's my belief that if they do this, the long-term interests of both the country and the company will be better served. Well, folks, that's all I have to say about the politics of oil production, an engineer's perspective. And thank you for listening and join me next time. Bye.